So we started with a prayer, right? America the beautiful. God, we need your grace shed on us because we have this beautiful land that is a stewardship for us. We recognize that that we did not create the environment of freedom that we live in. It's, it, is, it is truly a gift from you, and we don't want to squander the opportunities that you've given us. So God, shed your grace on us today. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. And then we cry out, Lord, let your kingdom come. That is our greatest desire above anything else. Let your kingdom come in this place. Use us as your vessels. And do you know the way that God's kingdom advances? As his truth marches on as individual souls submit to the will of God, God's kingdom advances. And yet one of the greatest barriers to real real fellowship and accountability in the church is because every single one of you, more likely, more, more, more likely than not, you have felt or even feel today that you've got to put a mask on to come in here. And that we don't want people to see us for how we really are. We don't, want to, we, don't, we don't want people to see the brokenness that's inside of us. If people knew that I actually couldn't sleep last night, but that I cried all night long, would they really accept me? Or would they just label me as a diva? Right? Or as high maintenance? And, and, but yet, that is the kind of environment that God is calling us to as a church. And, I, and that's one, so all of this fits together in my mind. It may seem totally discombobulated uh, to you, but that's, that's how all of this fits together. Even us coming to Zephaniah today to understand, to understand something very crucial about God's plan for us. And it's, by, it's no accident that we come to Zephaniah on uh, the week that we celebrate Independence Day. And so you'll see, you'll see how all that's connected here uh, in just a moment, but I've, I've told you we are studying through the screw tape letters on Wednesday night on Sunday mornings with a college class, and um, and the, the connections are just so vibrant between where we are and and what I'm reading in the screw tape letters, and so uh, the screw tape letters was actually written about 57 years ago, uh, and the human protagonist in the story is being drafted into World War II, into military service there in England. And if you know anything about the screw tape letters, it's, uh, it's written from the perspective of the, of the demons who are trying to tempt this man to turn his back on God. And screw tape is the, is the name of the senior demon, and wormwood is the name of the junior demon. But basically, the demons assigned to tempt this man are having a discussion about how to use the war to turn him away from God. The, their main goal is to push the man towards one extreme or another. And for him specifically, on the one side, they could make him apathetic about the war, about the evil of Nazism spreading through, like a virus throughout Europe and others fighting for his freedom. Or they could push him to the other extreme, and that is making him so patriotic that his patriotism functionally becomes one of the most important parts of his religion. And I love how amazingly relevant that is for us today is that the polarization that's happening in our nation as we speak this weekend is is so vast. There's such a vast gulf between the two opposites, and we play into Satan's hand when we join a side in that sense. 
And let me, let me read you the exact quote. Screwtape says, Once you've made the world an end, meaning a goal, and faith a means to accomplish that goal, then you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, uh, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayer and other spiritual disciplines, and especially loving his neighbor. So, let me put that in 2018 vernacular. Screwtape would, would be telling Wormwood, if we can just get those people to label the side that disagrees with them and demonize them and keep them from seeing that it's their obligation to love their neighbor as themselves even when their political policies are the polar opposite from them. If we can just, if we can just divide them in that way, then we've almost won the battle. 57 years ago seems pretty relevant for today, doesn't it? And so that's why today as we open our Bibles to Zephaniah, I would advocate for a biblically balanced patriotism. A biblically balanced patriotism. Let me tell you what that looks like. First of all, a biblically balanced patriotism is a brand of patriotism that, first of all, praises God for placing us in an environment where we can raise our kids and worship in freedom. The fact is, is that if you go to uh, nations where there is no religious liberty, and you ask parents if they would prefer for their kids to grow up in an environment where they could know God publicly, where they could profess Him publicly, and they could evangelize, while they've seen good come from their trials, the fact is, is that faith would flourish in an environment of liberty. And so if you, if you have liberty today, then you need to praise God for it. That's the first component of a biblically balanced patriotism. And secondly, it, it gives thanks to God for the foundational principles of liberty, which are rooted in God's design by which our founding fathers established this nation. Now here's, here's, the, here's where you'll hear probably the clearest uh, understanding of patriotism that the Lord's brought me to in the last six months. I absolutely love the foundational principles and the idea of America. But I am deeply disturbed by what some Americans have done with that idea. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I love, I praise God for the foundational principles of liberty that founded us as a nation. And I recognize, if, if you've ever read our history, then you recognize that the, the providence of God was greatly at work in establishing us in the midst of the, the, the kind of situation like Judge Peterson mentioned during his prayer. And yet, I am deeply disturbed at some of, the, some of the liberties that Americans have taken with that liberty and freedom that they've had. And so we need to recognize and give thanks for the foundational principles. And we need to, thirdly, be humbled by and willing to bestow honor upon the many men and women who have fought and died to protect the freedoms that we hold so dear. Fourthly, a biblically balanced patriotism recognizes that liberty is a stewardship to continue to pursue justice for all peoples. We can get lazy just celebrating Independence Day 
over and over and over and over and over again for what's now 37 years of my life, just celebrating it the same way. But over the last several years, we've tried to intentionally say, if you've got freedom, do something with it. If somebody fought for justice for you, then fight for justice for somebody else, right? And we're seeing that all throughout the Minor Prophets, that that's exactly what God designed for his people to be. And I'd be willing to bet that most people in this congregation would agree with all of the things that I've said so far, but let me add a final cornerstone of biblical patriotism, one that, one that says this, it exalts the biblical worldview and the narrative of the Bible above the many political narratives being espoused today. As I studied this, this week in light of, of Zephaniah and, and the week that our country observes Independence Day, this is a crucial point of intersection. And so what do I mean by exalt the biblical worldview and narrative above the many political narratives being espoused today? Here's what I mean. The four major themes, the plot line of the biblical narrative is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let's say that together. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right up there for reference so that nobody fails that test. I hope by the end of our series, when we end it sometime early next year, that you will be able to say, if somebody says, well, what's the Bible all about? Then you will follow that outline. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That narrative matters more than the platform of the Republican Party. That narrative matters more than the platform of the Democratic National Convention. That narrative matters more than what we hear on the news every day. We've got to root ourselves in that narrative and not in all of the other narratives that people are trying to get us to buy into. That is of utmost importance that we root ourselves in a biblical worldview and understand that narrative. And let me show you what that looks like. That means that as Christians recognize, as Christians submit to that, uh, that understanding of life, which is the biblical worldview, that we recognize as citizens, temporary citizens of America that the greatest problems come from inside of us individually and corporately rather than outside of us individually and corporately. Let me say that again. Our greatest problems, Christians alone have the ability to recognize this, is that our greatest problems as individuals and as a nation come from inside of us rather than outside of us. As much as it may appeal to some to identify our greatest threats as coming from North Korea, illegal immigration, or climate change, Christians will recognize this is absolutely not the case. I mean that Christians who understand that liberty has been totally redefined in our day. And it's brought about the degradation of every area of society. You see, the moment that you take liberty as being the freedom to pursue what is right and turn it into the freedom to pursue your own preferences, then you will turn the American community into millions of self-serving individual citizens. Let me say that again, because this is, this is crucial for us to understand and celebrate Independence Day in a biblical context. So, Christians understand that more than illegal immigrant, immigrants crossing our borders, that it's a worse problem when Americans within our borders redefine liberty as just being having the freedom to pursue whatever I want, whatever vice I want, whatever lifestyle I want, whatever thing that I want, that that's a greater threat than anything else. Because liberty was never established as that. Liberty, in, in our founding fathers' understanding, was established 
as the freedom to pursue virtue, the freedom to do what was right. We've just recently defined it as the freedom to do whatever you want, this kind of self-autonomy. And the moment that you do that, you totally divorce America from the community and civil society that America is supposed to be, and you turn America into millions of individual self-serving people. And if you need evidence of that, just go watch Facebook for a little while, right? And you will, and you will see that people's main agenda is the kingdom of self and not the kingdom of God. And even our many officials in our government, they serve the kingdom of self and not the kingdom of God. And not that America should be a nation who's, who takes up the mission that only the church was meant to fulfill. But at the same time, God's design is such, and our founders understood it to be, that government has a very limited role in our society, but the church has an irreplaceable role in our society. And when you get those two confused, or when you say that the government has this fear, and the family has this fear, and the government says, mm, I'm not so sure the family's doing a good job, so we need to insert ourselves into that sphere and start controlling that sphere that the government never had any, any authority from God to do, society breaks down. And so you're thinking, how in the world does this have to do, what, what in the world does this have to do with Zephaniah? Because here is where the rubber meets the road for people who believe the gospel. All the things that I've mentioned about what's wrong with our society can't be fixed by the government. The government will propose many solutions. But if you look at what they do, they're not really concerned with solutions. They're concerned about keeping the issues in front of you so that you'll keep coming to them for solutions. And then they'll vote, and that solution won't work, so they'll spend some more time like throwing it back and forth, and then they'll come back with another solution, they'll vote it down. I mean, that's just what they do. The church of Jesus Christ is the only agency of God in this nation and around the world that has the real solution to individual transformation, which leads to cultural transformation, which leads to political transformation. You see, culture is downstream from politics. If you want to see a nation changed, the gospel is the only answer. If you want to see individuals changed, families changed, Schools changed. Workplaces changed. Governments changed. Nations changed. Then you've got to speak into the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. And the only, the only thing that you can speak into the heart with is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for the salvation of any who would believe. And this is exactly, this is exactly why in God's providence we've been led to the book of Zephaniah today. And so why turn our focus on Zephaniah? We'll look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. What we're going to see is, is that God is doing something more. God is doing something greater. God is doing something that transcends our time and even our nation. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. Sounds like, sounds like a fun guy. Uh, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so we want to turn our attention to Zephaniah and understand what God is doing through him so that we can understand what God is doing in our time. That's been the whole premise of our series. If we understand his story, then we, we will understand our story. 
If we, can, if we can truly wrap our minds around and meditate upon and saturate ourselves in His story, then we will understand our story and the, the story that we're living out every single day. So Zephaniah spoke the word of the Lord in the final decades of Judah's exi- existence as a nation. During those days, God had given Judah a respite from the intense paganism and idolatry of the previous kings, Manasseh and Ammon, which were Josiah's grandfather and father. And so Josiah's reforms began with a few things. And you can just write these down. Uh, uh, we won't actually go back and, and read them right now. But Josiah, uh, you find a lot of kids, or I, I, at least when I was growing up, had a lot of kids named Josiah because Josiah was the, one of those people from the Bible that you really want to name your kid after. You don't find many kids, many little girls named Jezebel, right? It just doesn't happen, right? Um, and so, but you find a lot of Josiahs because Josiah was a young man who sought God from a very early age, and he established many reforms in Israel during this, I mean, kind of sandwiched in between these, these times of intense idolatry and paganism. And so the first thing that Josiah did to begin reform was that he focused on God's promises to David. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2 tells us this. He focused on the promises of David. 2 Kings 22, 2 actually says that when David... I mean, uh, when Josiah became king, that he sought to follow God according to the words that God had spoke to David. So Josiah recognized that his dad was an evil guy. He recognized that there was evil in the lineage of the kings that had been uh, reigning over Judah. And he said, I don't think that honors the Lord. And so Josiah looked all the way back to David. He said, I want to be a king like that. And so that's how his reforms began. But secondly, he took interest in repairing the temple and ridding it of idols. And in fact, 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 5 says that he established a, uh, a special construction crew, essentially, to go back and to repair the temple, to clean it out, and, uh, and, and that's exactly what they did. Well, thirdly, as they were cleaning that temple out, y'all know the story, what did they find? They found a scroll, the book of the law. And so Josiah calls the priest and he says, what's this? Which tells you how far gone Israel was, right? I mean, they, they, they were far gone from genuine worship in Israel. And so Josiah doesn't even know that this is a scroll. He has one of the priests come and read it. And then after that, he establishes these widespread reforms in Israel that cleansed Israel of idolatry. And there's no doubt that God sent Josiah and raised him up to provide this kind of reform in Judah. But remember, the Bible has told us that our greatest problems are not outside of us, but inside of us. And while Josiah started well, he didn't finish well. Because Josiah, was, uh, he foolishly went to, um, went to meet with a guy named Pharaoh Necho, who was the Pharaoh of Egypt. And I guess the Pharaohs, uh, they, they don't let go of grudges, you know, I mean the whole plagues and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, because Pharaoh Necho, in meeting with Josiah, killed him, murdered him, right? And so Josiah's dead, and Zephaniah basically is set back as a prophet of God, and he said, I saw all of this coming. And he, basically what we have in the book of Zephaniah is a summary of his prophecies that he spoke to the people of Judah in Josiah's days. And Josiah, I mean, uh, Zephaniah, basically what he did was warn of judgment. The judgment on Judah, but the judgment 
of all the nations around him as well. And so let's look at uh, chapters 1 and 2. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1 in Zephaniah. And what I want you to do is, as I read this, I want you to think about, kind of hold it in your mind, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and what God did in creation and what he says he will do in Zephaniah, what Zephaniah says God's, God's going to do. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut, them off, cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along, uh, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, who is a false god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So basically, in Zephaniah chapter 1, you have Zephaniah declaring God is going to do a great reversal of creation in His judgment of Israel. Whereas God formed and filled the earth in Genesis chapter 1, and then gave man the stewardship of it, it's kind of like God lamenting in, uh, in Genesis when He looks at the wickedness of man in uh, Noah's day. Or he looks at the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's basically saying, these people have taken the life that I've given them and they've used it to define life on their own terms. Namely, they've used their liberty and their strength and their passion and all of the things that I've given them as human beings, they've used it to pursue their own preferences rather than use it to pursue what is right. Does that sound familiar? We kind of already said that, right? But we weren't talking about Israel, were we? What were we talking about? the United States of America, and the culture that is, is our culture in this day. These are the same things that God said that he was going to wipe out Israel for, for using the life and the energy and the giftedness and the resources that God had poured out on them. They were using it for themselves rather than using it for the glory of God. And so God raised up all of these societal institutions, these institutions, these governments, these politicians, these banks, these financial markets, and other economic centers, and God will bring them down in Israel as judgment upon the evils of the culture. So look at verse 15 in chapter 1. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness a day of a trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Why in the world would God do this? Turn over to chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 2. Why would God send that kind of judgment and devastation upon Judah, upon his chosen people, Israel. Look at verse 2. Because she listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. When we got to Africa, and we sat at a restaurant with the missionary that was kind of giving us, he was kind of helping us understand what we were going to be doing and what we were going to be facing while we were there, he said words that shocked me. And yet, if I'd read Zephaniah, they probably wouldn't shock me. Because what he said was, was simply this. 
He said, Ryan, are you teachable? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, because if you're not teachable, I will put you on a plane right now and send you back home. That's not the most tactful thing to say to a person who's just been traveling for like 24 hours straight, but it was the best thing to say because it let us know, okay, he means business. Obviously, we need to humble ourselves and listen, right? That's exactly what God's saying here is the problem with Israel. They're unteachable. They think they've got it all figured out. They've determined the way that they're going to go, and they haven't even asked what I've said. And in going their own way, they have become a curse to their families, to their children, their grandchildren, to the neighbors around them, and to the nations around them. They become a curse because they would not heed my voice. You see, these institutions of Israel had sowed the seeds of their own destruction when they chose to walk against God because when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. And yet, Zephaniah is not known for that. If, if you ask anybody, in fact, if you look at the summary verse that's on your sheet, the summary verse of Zephaniah is Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 tells us about hope on the other side of judgment, which is what, why, I think it's why everybody loves the book of Zephaniah. The first two chapters are really, really tough to get through. But then if you can get to the, to the third chapter, there are depictions of the Lord God there that are in, just an incredible blessing. You see, judgment, what, what Zephaniah tells them, judgment is coming, but there's hope to be found. God's judgment is not aimed at destroying people, but to purify the nations, including God's people. And so look at verse 9 of Zephaniah chapter 3. Verse 9. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one Accord. Okay, so first of all, think about, think about that, just that first section. For at that time, I will change the speech of all peoples. We, we talked about a great reversal of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 earlier, right? Well, this is a great reversal of Genesis chapter 11, where God confuses the languages of the nations and creates these diverse cultures at the Tower of Babel. So God says... I cursed the world with the flood. I cursed the world with Babel. And now, in judgment, I'm going to bring about the purification to reverse those curses. God is going to reverse these curses by giving us pure speech and having us all call upon the name of the Lord. And so how will God bring healing? By transforming all of the nations into one unified all those from every tribe and tongue who would call upon the name of the Lord for their salvation, like Romans 10 talks about. All those who would trust in the Messiah. God will weave them together. Whether they are red, yellow, black, or white, God will weave them together into one family made up of every tribe and every tongue. And how will this happen? Look at verse 17. Verse 17. How will it happen? How will there be one family? How will there be salvation available to every tribe and every tongue? Because the Lord your God is in your midst. Zephaniah is looking at a day when, like other prophets have prophesied, there will be a manifestation of Emmanuel, which is God with us. That they didn't understand exactly how it worked. We do. God would come and He would dwell in their midst. And he would purchase this salvation from him. Zephaniah says that there is hope on the other side of this purifying judgment. 
And so look at verse, um, uh, think, think about it this way. Zephaniah foretells a time where God would come down and be Emmanuel, God with us, and would open the door to reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel. The judgment of God poured out to create many nations points to the curse of sin. Yet God is still at work in the nations, having determined allowed periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. That's Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. And how else can you explain the founding of the United States of America? There on the hill in Athens, Paul was talking about America as a nation. That somehow, some way, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that God would establish nations, not just America, but all nations. God's sovereign over all nations, and He would establish those nations, and those nations would have specific purposes at a specific time. And you see, this is the core of balanced biblical patriotism. Recognizing that God has established America as a means to a greater end. That the gospel would be advanced and declared among all nations. You realize, and this may shock some of you, okay? But you do realize that there will be no American flags in heaven. Just let that... In, in, in light of all we've said, just let that sink in. Leonardo da Vinci said, when I want to criticize, I just create something better. And so, my criticism of the way that we celebrate Independence Day is not an utter condemnation because nobody else gets it. Who gets it? The people that God has spoken to should get it. That our patriotism is for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the fame of His name, that the fact that He has come to dwell among us and that He is coming again would be what we declare to the nations. And friends, we don't want the government trying to do that, okay? Like I said, they've got their purpose, right? Protecting our freedom, namely to declare the gospel in freedom so that as we declare the gospel, just like we saw with Paul in Acts chapter 17, that as we declare the gospel, and it, it will stand on its own in the marketplace of ideas, that when compared to Islam and Buddhism and atheism and secular humanism and evolution and all of these other worldviews that are out there, that when you hold up the gospel and you hold up the, the Bible, that it makes sense of the world in a way that no other worldview can. Scripture is like a lion, that if you would just let it out of, it out of its cage, it'll fight for itself, right? And so, this is what we're called to. We are called to use this temporary citizenship as Americans as a stewardship to point to a greater nation. And that is the kingdom of Almighty God. That's what Zephaniah would say to us if he was standing here today. I think Zephaniah would love air conditioning and cubed ice and like all these other kind of things that we just really appreciate. Indoor plumbing. Praise God for all those things. But he would also say to us, has not the Lord your God been in your midst? And has not that Lord your God called you to a kingdom whose purpose is greater than the purpose of Western democracy? 
Is religious liberty and democracy and capitalism, all these things, are they good in and of themselves? They can be used for good, yes. But they can also be used for evil. But the gospel of Jesus Christ turns evil people into godly people. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms cultures, which is the explanation of our culture today in its purest form. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms men and women into godly men and women. And that's why we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's the invitation. Eighteen years ago, Mel Gibson starred in the movie The Patriot, which is one of my favorite movies. It's a fictionalized account of, a, of the kind of warfare and sacrifice that took place during the Revolutionary War. And in this scene that I'm about to show you, uh, people are gathered together to worship at, at, at their local church. And it's, they're gathered together to worship in light of a recent hanging that was perpetrated by British soldiers. And so I want you to take a moment, I want you to listen to this, uh, this scene. Nope, well, not, not, okay, there we go. Hold on. Can I just pause and do a shameless plug right here? I would love it if you could see the scene playing out before you. Last Sunday, we voted to open up a designated line for 60 days so you could give for a new projector. And, and the reason you can't see this is because we, we need a new projector, okay? So just listen to it and... Uh, Sorry about that. I, I just had to say that because you really you can't see it, and there's a lot of a lot of looks and all those kinds of things that would be great. You can go watch it on YouTube later. But anyway, just listen to it. This is Heath Ledger coming in. Reverend, with your permission, I'd like to make an announcement. Young man. This is a house of God. I understand that, Reverend. I apologize. The South Carolina militia is being called up. I'm here to enlist every man willing. Son, we are here to pray for the souls of those men hanging outside. Yes, pray for them. But honor them by taking up arms with us. And bring more suffering to this town. King George can hang those men, our friends. He can hang any one of us. Dan Scott, barely a week ago, I heard you rail for two hours about independence. And? Mr. Hardwick, how many times have I heard you speak of freedom at my father's table? Half the men in this church, including you, Father, and you, Reverend, are as ardent patriots as I. Will you now, when you are needed most, stop at only words? Is that the sort of men you are? He shoots her a look. I ask only that you act upon the beliefs of which you have so strongly spoken and in which you so strongly believe. She shoots him a look. He shoots her another look, nods, she shoots him a look. Who's with us? Who's with us? Okay, so, like I said, 
in the midst of the humor, it's a really, really good scene. It's like the freedom scene from Braveheart. I mean, it's, it, and it's delivered by this, you heard all the mumbling, right? Because this woman speaking up in church, and oh, that was taboo in those days, right? But, but hear what she says, right? And this is, this is where I want you to recognize that God bestows truth in order for people to respond to that truth. And so you've heard this now for years from me, and you've heard me say these things like this to you, and now with, with just utmost clarity I say to you, will you now, when you are needed most, merely stop at words? And the call for us is not to go join a militia and take up arms. I recognize that some of you would be comfortable with that call. Because I know you men, okay? Like, I know you. If, if we said, hey, we're starting a militia and we get together and shoot this weekend, you're there, right? And you'll stay for however long we ask you to, right? I recognize that with some of you, but that's not the call. Do you know what the call is? The call is for you to be as comfortable articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody who needs it as you are driving your tractor. The call is for you to be as comfortable talking to somebody about the beauty of God's design in covenant marriage and God's design for the family. As comfortable as you are cooking your favorite meal or, men shooting your favorite gun or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. For, do you, you get what I'm saying? Will you now, when you are needed most, and there, we've, we've cast the vision, there's no doubt that we are needed most now in this culture. Will you now, when you are needed most, merely stop at words? Now, here's, here's, a, here's one thing that I'd like to say before we close. Many of you and many of your family members have given far more than words. And th- so this is not to degrade the sacrifices, the service that many people in this church have offered, not only in the service of our country, but in the service of this church. But there is a critical need for Christians to live it out and speak it out. For people not just to see the gospel in us, but to hear the gospel from us. About the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that leads to transformation where God literally mends the broken things back together. Are we broken? Yes. Think back to the offertory song. We are broken. But has God been faithful to mend us? If we've come to Him, He absolutely has. And we are not meant to simply be repositories of that comfort and that truth and that calling, but we are meant to overflow that into the lives of the people around us who so desperately need us. And just to show my, my, my hand of what, what I've got, 51 people are going to New Orleans next week, a city six hours away, which is in desperate need of the gospel. We all agree with that. But when we come back, is not our city in desperate need of the gospel? And can we not do some of the same simple things there or here that we will do there? Absolutely we can. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest closest to home. And so my prayer is that God will mobilize you to pour out your skills and your talents and your passions and your abilities to use your freedom in that way, not to be lazy, but to be articulate, to be winsome, 
to be intentional so that people can hear from us, people in our community can hear from us about how to find hope in the midst of despair and, and to how, how, how that brokenness does not necessarily mean the end of life and how God can provide a path of life out of darkness. You see, nobody else has that message, church, and we do, and God wants to use us, and that is our privilege. And so let us not, not merely use words, but let us take up this call and go forth and be intentional. And let us use our freedom in that way. Let's pray together.